Well, if you have your Bibles with you, if you'll open uh, to Matthew chapter 25, we're going to start in verse uh, 14. Uh, we're going to take a little break uh, from the Gospel of Luke. We're going to come back to it in January. Um, and there's going to be uh, three sermons the next three weeks. We're going to be talking about uh, Christian giving. And uh, I'll say a little bit more about uh, that. And then we'll have a couple Christmas uh, sermons. And then it'll be January in the new year. Uh, so yeah, Matthew chapter 25, we're going to start in verse 14. This is the parable of the talents. For it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, or traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two uh, uh, talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I've made five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I've made two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I repped where uh, I would reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then ought you uh, to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, I ask that you would work powerfully through this parable. 
as we look to your word and we consider our own lives, Lord, I pray that you would be molding us into faithful servants. God, I pray that all of us would not be ashamed when we stand before Christ. Uh, Lord, I ask that uh, you would use uh, this message for your glory. Lord, I pray that uh, you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. The next three weeks, I'm going to be preaching about giving. Uh, This week, we're going to try and see what the Scripture says, help us understand what it means to be faithful stewards. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at investing in eternal treasure. What does it mean to store up treasures in heaven, to get money bags that don't grow old? We're going to look at the shortest parable in the Bible next week, the parable of the traveler that finds the treasure in the field. And then the third sermon, we're going to consider what Scripture teaches uh, about the principles of how ought we to give. Uh, We're going to see that the Scripture is really practical to help us think through uh, how we handle our money and how we handle our life. And uh, you might be saying... So why three giving sermons right now? Why take a break uh, and preach on this? And I can tell you that I've prayed hard and thought hard as to how to explain this to you, not wanting to be misunderstood, not wanting uh, someone to leave with the wrong impression, And the conclusion I came to was just to try to be as honest as I can uh, with uh, what God has been doing in my heart and my mind and what circumstances have come up in the last month. And I felt like it was as if God reminded me, this is your flock. This is your family. Just speak honestly to them. And so that's uh, what I desire to do uh, this morning. So why would I preach these sermons? Someone might say, well, Thanksgiving is coming up. Let's think about giving. Well, that's convenient in the providence of God, but that's not the main reason. Someone might say, well, Christmas is a time of giving. God gave His Son, so let's teach about giving uh, for that reason, and I'm thankful in the providence of God, that that is true. Uh, But that's not the main reason. The main reason that I want to preach this morning to you about giving is because I want God to be glorified and I want your soul to be safely resting in Him. Our finance committee that 
has normally in the past met maybe two or three times a year, has been meeting, uh, we've probably met three or four times in the last month and a half. Uh, And part of the reason for that is because our church is trying to consider uh, what we should do in regards to our facility, where whether we should stay here, whether we should uh, think about building a building or buying a building. We've uh, looked at some buildings that seem like would work good uh, for a church. And the job of uh, these two different commit- committees, one, a building exploration committee, Uh, whose job is to explore and get plans for the possibilities that are in front of us uh, is is one committee. The other committee is the finance committee answering the question, what can we afford? What would it look like? What would it look like to be wise in looking at the options that are set before us? And so one of the things the finance committee has done is looked at how much revenue has come in the last three years at Sovereign Grace Church. And I can tell you as a pastor, about the only thing I knew about the money given at Sovereign Grace Church is that we met our budget every year and that we were able to put some in savings. That's honestly all I knew. I've been thankful to God that uh, I'm able to pastor in a church where we, I haven't had to be concerned about whether or not we're going to meet the budget. But another part of the process that that committee uh, took on was looking at how the money has come into Sovereign Grace church, in a sense, to look at the unit of givers, and not to look at names of who gives what, that's not what the committee did, but looked at the units of giving. Uh, The reason why this is important is when you're trying to discern whether or not it's wise to go purchase a building, let's say, for a million dollars or $800,000, It's important to know how your money comes in. Um, One of the things they discovered is that purchasing a building, for example, for a significant price could in fact be unwise because of the way the giving has come in. Uh, Simply put, the majority of the giving is coming Uh, from a small minority of the people, while the majority seems to show some evidence that they're not as financially committed to SGC as uh, I maybe, or we as elders maybe would have thought. We would just look at the end number. So just to be clear on that, what they discovered is uh, the majority of money comes from not very many uh, givers, while the majority of the members and regular attenders seem to uh, not be evidencing financial commitment as much. Now, what's this have to do with purchasing a building? Well, in regards to purchasing a building, this puts us at a high-risk position 
if we're going to be a potential buyer. If a few members left, the church could be in financial problems really quickly. This was all new information to me and to the elders. And here's where I want you to listen carefully to me. Whether or not we ever get a new facility, or whether that's a viable option for us right now, has not been what's been on my heart. That is not the concern of the elders of this church. Hebrews 13.17 says this of elders and pastors, leaders. They are those keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. The job description for me as a pastor is to watch over the souls of those who the Lord has given. In Acts 20, Paul talking to the Ephesian elders says this, Therefore I testify you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He's talking to elders in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The responsibility that God has given me is to consider the people purchased by God in their souls and to not withhold anything from Scripture from them that would protect their souls. So as your elders, our concern was raised, not because of the potential of not being able to buy a building, hear me, not for that reason. Not because we put our hope in money and think God cannot provide for us. We have incredible confidence that God will care for His church. He purchased it with His own blood. That's not why these sermons are going to be preached. The concern raised is because of what Scripture teaches about money and stewardship and how it relates to where our heart's treasure really is. As I considered the possible reasons for the data received from the finance committee, I begin to pray at least at, begin to pray in at least three possible explanations, all of which I'm sure play a part in the data, came to mind. First, and I would say foremost, here's where I was convicted. Maybe we haven't taught well enough or often enough on what the Scripture teaches about Christian giving. In this case, ignorance would be a cause of not giving to Christ's church faithfully. And as I've been reading this month, uh, really spending time in this little book, The Treasure Principle, I want to put this in every one of your hands. 
incredible book by Randy Elkhorn just filled with scripture. And our finance committee is going through this book, Budgeting for a Healthy Church. Uh, Nine Marks Ministries put the, puts this out. Jamie Donlop. What does it look like for a finance committee to have a budget that glorifies God? That isn't just doing business, but is seeking God's will for every dime spent. So in spending time in these two books, I can tell you I've been convicted as your pastor of not clearly and effectively teaching on this topic. Hear me when I say, I'm looking in first. I really believe. In fact, I can't wait to preach the sermon today and next week and the next week because of the incredible joy that God reveals to us in being able to give our lives for the sake of Christ. Secondly, maybe... Uh, a budget that's been met every year with extra put in savings has caused people to give elsewhere where they see more need. And that's a real possibility where you're being faithful and it's just not seen necessarily in uh, giving to uh, the local church. Or thirdly, uh, maybe their hearts are attached too much to the things of the world and their love for Christ needs to grow. Maybe they need to remember who they are and who God is and what their purpose is. And I believe it's all those three. And so, obviously the approach I chose to explain why I'm preaching these sermons is just those circumstances. The goal of these sermons is that you love God more, that you be found faithful when you stand before Christ, that your treasure and hope is in eternal and not temporal things, that your joy would be full. That's the purposes of these sermons. So while it's true that the facility building exploration was the circumstance that brought about this information, brought this information to our attention. It's not the thing we're most concerned about because God wants our hearts. God wants our hearts. And the Bible says, where your money is, is a sure fire. A sure fire. Example of where your treasure is. Where your heart is. So first point in your notes this morning. The link between our hearts and money. And we've been seeing this in Luke. Because of this fact, uh, our hearts and money are linked together. Because that's true, the Bible talks about money everywhere. Jesus talks about money all 
the time. In fact, 16 out of Jesus' 38 parables is about money or possessions. You might say, well, why would he do that? Because he wants their hearts. One out of every 10 verses in the Gospels is directly speaking about money or possessions. 288 verses to be exact. Jesus talked more about money than heaven or hell combined. In fact, the only topic Jesus talked more about was the kingdom of God. And when he talked about money, he's actually talking about the kingdom of God. Because he's trying to get them to discern where their hope is. Where their life rests. A person might think their checkbook cannot tell the story of their heart, but Scripture disagrees with that premise. If you remember, we looked at Luke 12 a few weeks ago when the gentleman spoke up and said to Jesus, tell my brother to give me the inheritance. And Jesus said, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He says, be careful. Be careful of where you're putting your treasure, where you're putting your hope. And then in verse 32 of chapter 12, He says, fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So the kingdom of God is over here. Your Father wants to give it to you, he says. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. So the Father wants to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy, he says. Provide for yourselves, provide yourselves with money bags that grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Jesus is saying, invest well. He's not just saying, deny yourself. He says, invest in a place where the returns are eternal rather than temporal. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want your heart thinking about the kingdom of God, you have to put your money and your time and your life in the kingdom of God. Because if you put your money in GM stock, guess what you're going to start doing? You're going to start checking your GM stock. Before you put your money there, you never thought of it. And so next week, we're going to look at at how our heart just incredibly follows wherever we invest our time, our life, our money. That's where our hearts will rest. There's this link between our hearts and money. In fact, turn with me to Luke 3. Starting in verse 7. 
This is where John the Baptist is preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and people are coming to be baptized. And in verse 7, the crowds came out to be baptized, and John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Basically, he's saying, why are you here? You don't love God. You have no desire to repent of your sins. Bear fruit of repentance if you want the baptism of repentance. And then he says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? Now, here's the clear point I want to make. The question is, what shall we do to demonstrate spiritual fruit and transformation? What would it look like for us to bear fruit with repentance? And he says three things. Whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. Why does he go talk about possessions right away? Because possessions and money is the rubber that meets the road to your heart. He's saying that's what it would look like. And then he says, And whoever has food do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. The soldiers asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Don't exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. Boom, boom, boom. You want to know what spiritual repentance looks like? What's your relation to your stuff and what you have? And this is all throughout. I could give you so many of these. We don't have time. Luke 19, though, I do want to show you that one. The story of Zacchaeus. He, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. This is Luke 19.1. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the, a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass by, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anything, anyone of anything, I, will, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today has come 
Today, salvation has come to this house. How do you know Zacchaeus truly was trusting Christ? Because he's willing to make the payment. His love, his idol, his life that he used to live for, he was now holding open like this, and he had a different goal and a different direction of the way he was going to live. In Acts 2.44, you don't need to turn there, we read, and all who believed were gathered together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who had need. Now, why? Next week, this is going to be the main point. Why? Because they just saw a new king, and they just realized a new kingdom. And so the old king themselves and their own old kingdom did not matter to them anymore. Now they wanted to be faithful to the king of kings. So their relation to stuff changed. In fact, now they wanted to use their stuff in order to store up eternal reward in heaven that'll last forever. And that's not wrong. Because that's how the New Testament, that's one of the ways the New Testament motivates Christian faithfulness. As we're going to see in our parable, the one who handles God's money well in heaven is going to be given more responsibility. And that'll be a privilege to serve Him that way. And then if we're to look at Acts 19, Listen to this statement. Uh, speaking of those in Ephesus, and fear fell among them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of the sum of them, and it came to be 50,000 pieces of silver, which is multi-millions of dollars. They become Christians and they give away millions of dollars of what they used to value almost immediately. Example after example after example that you can't separate your relation to your possessions and your spiritual life. Second point, as a way of introduction into this topic, God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. God isn't broke. That's not why we give. Psalm 50 verse 9 says this, I will not accept a bowl from the house from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine. God doesn't need our money because it's all 
His. That's going to be one of the main points of the parable we're looking at today. We don't own a thing. It's all His. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it among the rivers. In Haggai 2.7 we read, And I'll shake the nations so that the treasures of the nations shall come in to Israel. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of the hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord. Deuteronomy 8.17, you might be saying, wait a minute, I worked hard for my money. I worked harder than my neighbor for my money. Deuteronomy 8.17 says this, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and my, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. It is He who gives you power to get wealth. That He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers this day. God doesn't need your money. It's all His. The question is, will we be faithful stewards with what God has given us. And I would not love your soul if I did not plead with you to consider your own life in regards to faithfulness. Because as we're going to see, we all will give an account. Yes, you're not saved by works. No, you're not saved by giving money to the church. But the saved believer will give an account for everything he has. For the stuff we spent on our kingdom, my will be done. For my blessing, we will give an account for that. And for that which we spend for his glory and for his honor, we will be rewarded for. And for those who don't show fruit, like the third servant, uh, proved to be those who never actually knew the master at all. So I know we're running out of time just jumping into the parable here. But I want to pull out four points from this parable. Point one is this. Do you believe He, or the question number one is, do you believe he is worthy of your life? This has to do with your view of God. Do you believe he's worthy of all of your life? Let's make the question simple. Do you believe God is good? Do you believe God is good? If you look at verse 24 of this parable, Matthew 25, 24, the third servant says this, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. This is the surprise of the parable. Whenever the surprising point comes forward, usually the point of the parable comes forward. What was the flaw of the third man who took the talent 
and buried it in the ground. The flaw was he didn't see his master worthy to take the time and risk what he gave him to do better for him. He's called a slothful servant. He basically took it. He said, you know what? I'm king of my life. You're not going to be master of my life. I'm going to take this talent. I'm going to bury it in the ground. I'm going to forget about you. If you ever show up, I guess I'll dig it up and give it back to you. But the flaw was he didn't believe the master was worthy of his efforts, of his life. In fact, look at the first one. Look at the first servant. In verse... uh, Um, 15. Um, uh, To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He would receive the five talents, went at once, and traded them. You see that? Went at once. Went to action immediately. He's worthy of of the service. He realizes his master is good. That it's worth living his life for him. And that's in contrast uh, to the third man. The goal of giving is glorifying God by believing he's worthy to be obeyed and that he rewards those who trust him. You say, how is God glorified with how I use my money. Well, when you take your money and the world says, this is treasure, this is where life is found, and you're willing to depart from it and not store it up for yourself selfishly, and someone says, why don't you do that? Well, because my master said, go into all nations and make disciples. My master says, he's coming again and he's good and I want to be faithful to him and when the world looks at that they say you're crazy but you must think your master is amazing if you're willing to live unlike we are living and it glorifies him The goal of giving is glorifying God. Do you believe Jesus is worthy of your life? So as you remember who he is and who you are, he's the king, he's your master, you're the servant, you're the steward, you're the money investor. It's not your money. Do you believe your master is worthy of your life? Second, Are you remembering you're a steward? Garrett gave an amazing talk Wednesday night about retirement. How those who live to selfishly enjoy their earnings of their life at the end of their life show 
that that's where their treasure is. And he said, reading all these retirement books on how to retire well, they basically say, do what you want with your health, do what you want with your time, do what you want with your money. That's the goal of retirement. Or make sure you have health so you can have more time to enjoy your money. It's just the opposite of what God has told us. We're stewards of our life, our time, and our money. In fact, God doesn't want you to give 10%. God wants 100% of all of your money, of all of your time, of all of your body. It's His. And we will give an account for it. 10% is a great place to start in giving to your local church. But my Kessler bill ought to be spent for the glory of God because I know verses that says I need to take care of my family. Those who don't take care of their family are worse than a non-believer. My whatever expense, all of it can be done for the glory of God. But all of it, I should remember, I'm a steward. This isn't mine. I'll give an account. It's His. He's worthy of all that I have. There's a story of John Wesley of a time when a man came, a distraught man rode up on his horse and said, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned to the ground. And Wesley listened to the news and sat there for a moment quietly and calmly replied, no, the Lord's house has burned to the ground. That means I have one less responsibility to take care of. Now, what he wasn't doing is he wasn't saying this is no big deal when difficult things like this in life. But what was clear in Wesley's mind is that everything he had is God's. But it does take the edge off if you have that perspective. If you hang on, if you don't hang on to your stuff as though it's yours, yours, but that it's God's, and you're to handle it well, it's amazing how we can respond to situations. You notice in this text that there's a master and there's a steward. And all that they had is from the master. This is what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Why is sexual immorality wrong? Why is a gender change wrong? Why is homosexuality wrong? Because we're not kings of our bodies. It's God's body. God decides what glorifies Him. It's not whatever we want. It's what He wants. What has God said about what glorifies Him? So if we're stewards, 
how are we to steward our life? Matthew 28, 18, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's his way of saying, I'm king of the kingdom of God. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's our marching orders. That's why we're left here. What he has left us with is to be faithful with that call on our lives. With our time, our health, our money. Third, is the goal of your life faithfulness? After you remember you were, you're a steward, do you want to be a good steward? What does it mean to be a good steward? Faithfulness is the goal of a budget, not an end number. That's what Dunlop says here. Here's how he defines faithfulness from this text. He basically says it's risk-taking obedience. Risk-taking obedience. The first two go and trade the master's money and are obedient to do it right away, but it's risking. You see that? The third one was hedging his bets. The third one thought you could serve his master and money at the same time, but Jesus says you can't serve God and money. You either serve God or you'll serve money. He buried it in the ground, hedged his bets. Well, if he comes back, I'll just give it to him. But as a Christian, you, what do you risk living for him? Your old life, right? Take up your cross and follow me. No one can follow me unless he takes up his cross, denies himself, and follows me. We have a new purpose for living when we come to know Christ. And so we risk, the world looks at it and says, you're crazy for not storing this up for yourself. What a risky way to live. But Jesus says, no, that's, what the wise, that's how a wise investor lives. The goal is faithfulness. Will we invest well with what he's given us? Dunlop writes, when obedience means risking what the world loves, it becomes a bold statement about the goodness of God and trustworthiness of the master. Your actions are much more valuable than what they merely accomplish. They're valuable because of what they proclaim about God. Our faithfulness or lack of faithfulness screams out what we think of God, where our treasure is. In fact, the definition of faith in Hebrews 6, Hebrews 11 verse 6 is this, without faith it's impossible to please Him. Here's what true faith looks like. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The nature of saving faith is, I believe He exists, I'm going to face Him one day, and that He's a rewarder, that He's worth living my life for. The goodness of God is what ought to drive faithfulness. 
You're not doing it saying, oh man, I'm going to invest all this and I'm going to get nothing in return. It's just the opposite. This world's passing away. Eternity goes on forever. Where are you going to invest your soul? Where are you going to put your treasure? Where are you going to put your life? In fact, a parable very similar to Matthew 25, the parable of the talents is the parable of the minas in Luke 19. And uh, it, it is a different parable, but it's similar. And at the end of that parable, he says this, as for the, these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It's interesting. The one who didn't want the master to reign over them. You see, that's at the heart of the unfaithful servant. I don't want to work for you. I don't want to live for your glory. I don't want to think of this stuff as yours. And in our parable, it says, the ones cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds like a bad place apart from the goodness of God. But the faithful servants who put their hope in God found Him worthy to invest their lives. He says, enter the joy of your master. You can't get more opposite. Enter the joy of your master. So, is the goal of your life faithfulness? Is that how you've thought about your life? Did you simply think, well, I was a sinner, then Christ died for me and I received Christ, and now I just live till I die and I know I got my ticket to heaven? No, you were purchased as a son and daughter of God and as a servant that'll give an account, and you have an opportunity to invest now in a place where their dividends will go on forever. Are you remembering that? See, I wasn't, that wasn't so clear in my mind three weeks ago. It is now. It makes me excited, more excited about the Christian life. Fourth, are you remembering that you'll give an account? Sometimes we fool ourselves as though reality isn't reality. We see in verse 17, so also he who had two talents made two more, but he who had received the one talent dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled the accounts with them. You see, that's what we've been going through in Luke. Jesus is saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to get, you're going to give an account. Even though Christ doesn't, hasn't come for 2,000 years, He will come. This parable teaches everyone will give an account. Christians will be rewarded for how they've invested in the kingdom of God and that reward will never be taken from them. It'll impact, it changes eternity. You realize how you invest now changes how eternity will be with you forever in heaven. It's amazing. 
the opportunity, the privilege we have, but He, we will give an account. Romans 14.10 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, do you, or why do you despise your brother? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 1 Timothy 6.17. Well, we'll save that for next week. I want to end by reiterating Luke 12, verses 42 through 48. We went through this a couple weeks ago, but it has new life in my mind. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Blessed, happy, you see, if you're putting your money, if you're putting your life, if you're putting your time for the kingdom of God, you can't wait for Him to show up. Truly, I say to you, He'll set Him over all His possessions. But if the servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and eat, drink, and get drunk, he takes the master's stuff and uses it selfishly and says, ah, he's not coming back. The master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much is required and from him to whom much is entrusted, they will be demanded the more. So as your friend and pastor and fellow brother in Christ, I plead with you to remember God is worthy. Remember who we are. Next week we're going to see that this giving is not a somber thing, that that's where true joy is set. I got to tell you a, one more story. John Wesley spent a whole day on this rich plantation owner's plantation. He spent the whole day, it, it took that long, he didn't even see the vastness of it. They sat down for a fancy meal at the end of the day, and the guy says, so what did, what, did, what did you think? And Wesley replied, I think it's going to be hard for you to depart from all these things. He put his treasure down here. Every day gets sadder. It's one more day you're going to be separated from your stuff. But when we invest in the kingdom of God, Every day closer to our death is a day closer to seeing the returns of living for King Christ. And joy in this world gets more 
and more so that you're down to the last week of your life and you're leaning into it rather than sad looking how where all your eggs were put, what you have to leave behind. So it's my prayer that that'll be a joyous day. Father, we know that this is only possible that we could live this way because you sent Jesus to die for our sins, to purchase us. Not only to purchase us to pay for our sins so that they could be washed away and to give us righteousness, but you also died for us so that the taste buds of our hearts could be set free from selfishness and desire to live and glorify you. Lord, none of us are faithful. The greatest giver at Sovereign Grace is not faithful enough. We all can grow in faithfulness. But Lord, I pray that all of us would prove when our life is laid out, that there would be evidence that we lived for a different kingdom, that our hope was set in Christ. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that you would work it in our lives as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.